Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Morales. I'm the host of this thing. Uh, and I'm here today with my friend, Michael Charlie. Hey, everybody. Let's see here. Um, let's see how this works. Um, all right. So, um, so Michael, uh, how's it going, man? I, I, it looks like you are in a warehouse or converted apartment of some sort with now, many is, boxes. This is our office, but this is what an office looks like when you get back from a music festival at midnight and you don't want to organize anything, so you just dump everything in the middle of the room. Um, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the current state of affairs, which cleaning it up is the next on the agenda item after this. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, so, so just real quick before we kind of dive in, you know, um, you, it sounds like you know you're just at a festival. Talk, give it, give the 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 basic Sunski pitch. You know, who are you? What do you guys do? You know, what makes you guys special? And, and for someone who doesn't know anything about what what, what you guys are doing, got it. Well, um, Sunski is. Uh, my business. I co-founded it with my business partner Tom Stewart about three years ago, and we uh, really the, the core of what Sunski does is that we make really nice, high-quality, affordable, and stylish eyewear. Um, it all has a lifetime warranty, and it all sort of appeals to the new, younger, less stuffy demographic. And um, really, we're all about helping sort of urban adventures get outside, it's a brand that really resonates with our passions, and so we're able to really successfully just sort of tackle this niche by being super authentic with everything that we do, and we've sort of just been doing this from the heart for the last three years, and uh, we've been starting to gain traction, so we've, we've actually started to see quite a bit of success uh, simply from doing what we love. That's awesome, man. Um, so, you know, it, it still very much looks like a startup. Um, it, it probably was, was even more like a startup at, at some point. Um, what's the, what's the backstory? Tell us like, how did this thing come about? Well, you know, that's an awesome pitch. How'd you guys get here? Yeah. Um, I think, I think actually in, in terms of laying out like a cohesive story, Sunski is a great, a great case study simply because, um, we had an unbelievably incremental approach to, uh, to where we are today. Um, this story essentially starts, well, starts in a lot of places, but but we do have an office, we do have employees, we do usually have a nice clean conference area where we can have meetings in on our on our large whiteboard. But um, uh, at, at the moment, you know, it does feel like living out of a house. But this story starts in um, before an office. There was a uh, there was a living room of the apartment that Tom and I shared together. And before the living room, there was Tom and I working remotely uh, in the evening times, moonlighting from our day jobs, uh, him in Switzerland and me in Boston. And um, that, I think, is where, where the story truly begins. Um, how, how detailed of a, uh, of a breakdown do you want? Because this is about three years of the content I can relay. Yeah, man. Go for it, dude. I love it. It sounds awesome. All right. So... Um, Tom and I were the class of 2009 from Columbia College, and uh, we both had great ambitions. He wanted to be an architect, and I wanted to be a consultant. And um, we were essentially interviewing with businesses in um, October or November of 2008, and we were 
I was I was preparing for interviews with Lehman Brothers when they were literally shutting their doors. Um, and so it just the the uh, the plan that you make through college for what's going to happen after college just did not come to fruition at all. For I don't think anybody, um, but you know, Tom was the the guy that ended up on the same life raft as I did, and um, we sort of found where we could do. So Tom actually uh, landed an internship in Switzerland and I was working for a social networking startup in Boston. Um, I was a content moderator which was a uh, glorified glorified way to say that I was deleting pornography all day long. Um, it was pretty menial, terrible. I mean that aspect of the job was pretty tough. Um, and so we both thought that there could be something better for us out there. And um, it didn't take long before uh, Tom and I sort of decided that maybe going into business with ourselves would be the, the best way to create the life that we wanted to live because we, we had tried to apply for that life and um, got rejected and so we decided to create it instead. Um, that was when we started working evenings. I would go to work from 9 a.m. To, to 6 or 7 and then from 7 o'clock to midnight I would be just be working a second job and I did that for a year. It's basically just Tom and I on Skype and on Gchat, essentially trying to build one of the most ridiculous products that I still to this day think is the best design product we've ever created, which was the Salsible. Um, it was a ceramic bowl with a lip that came up concave back over the bowl. So when you scooped your chip up the high side of the bowl, it pushed your salsa back onto the chip. Dude, um, I've I've so wanted that. That's awesome. I still got a couple left, so I'll send them. I'll send one to you for sure. I count me in, man. Count me in. That's awesome. So, so that that was the idea. It was it was this sort of Tim Ferriss four hour work week inspired. Like, look, we're just going to make this one thing, and we're going to do it really well, and we're gonna we're gonna sell millions of them and make millions of dollars. Um, you know, obviously, life is what happens when you're busy making plans. So we we started with the solvable, and we actually um, ended up. I, I, we both went full-time way earlier than I think most people would consider going full-time for a business. I mean, this is the business where we had $270 in the bank account one, one quarter, and we were like, hey, we're solvent. Um, to, most, to most businesses, I think uh, that's usually it's time to fold. Um, but we, we just, we, no one told us when to quit, or we never learned how to quit, so we didn't. Um, and so essentially what happened was Tom and I, I convinced Tom to move out to San Francisco, and we lived together, and we had our own separate bedrooms, and then the living room just had a pretty much permanent desk setup that we would would work on the solvable, um, and we did that for almost a year uh, until just it was very difficult to make money with a low margin product like that. Um, Wait, no, we hold on a sec. Let me let me let me stop you right there. So let me get this straight. You guys both went to Columbia. Ivy League graduates and you know all the attendant um, sort of expectations and things that they fill your head with, you know, um, there. You end up basically being the guy who deletes porn from a social networking start. Was this like Facebook? What was the social networking startup? Um, it was actually pretty clever. It was a social network that was. Uh, essentially developed for feature phones, phones that were not smartphones. It was an underserved market that didn't have a lot of... Um, Facebook was not targeting them. MySpace had kind of missed them. So that there, was a, there was a demographic of people that didn't have smartphones but wanted to be connected. And so that was, that was the 
audience. What was it, it, called? What was it called? This was called Moco Space. I think they're still around. Moco Space. Okay. And I'm just, you don't have to share if you don't want to, but how much, how much were you getting paid by Moco Space to be their porn deleter? Um, when I started, I think I was making about 11 or $12 an hour. Um, but it was a job, which, uh, you know, this is the Great Recession. You had a job, so that's, that's, a, that's all that really matters. Um, but, and uh, so, so you're deleting porn all day. Um, and Tom is now a, an intern with a, a consulting group? or Tom was an intern at, um, he had basically an internship at a Swiss university uh, with their architecture, their robotics architecture lab. So it was, it was pretty cerebral stuff, but again, it was simply an internship when you know, we all wanted careers. We had just done four years of internships. Right. Uh, okay, so now, so you guys are interning uh, the, 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 the super intern and the porn deleter, and then it occurs to you guys to leave these jobs which for reasons that I think I can understand. Uh, and now when, like, what's the, walk me through the timeline here, just uh, to where we are now. So when did you quit? When did you stop deleting porn for a living? So, so I, I left that job in um, 2010. It would be April. No, maybe May. One of those months, um, just before the summer started. Uh, I basically quit that job, and I moved down to Philadelphia to live with Tom in his childhood bedroom in South Philly uh, to the point where we had such tiny accommodations that, that he had his single bed in his childhood bedroom, and I had a single mattress, blow-up mattress, that uh, was would be stacked up against the wall, and then at bedtime, I would put it down in an L shape to the base of his bed, but this is in a small room. Once my bed was down, you couldn't open the door to get out to use the bathroom or anything. This is, this is how tight our quarters were. Um, I lived there for a summer. And this was his parents' house? This is his parents' house. Yep, exactly. All right, so live in the recession, uh, the recession lifestyle back with the parents in Philly. Um, and you guys are, are the salsa bowl guys at this point. Yeah, exactly. And so, and this is, did, did I catch that spring 2010? This would be, yeah, 2010 is when it all, <laughs> all began. Um, and it's, it's, it's going into the, the hot, muggy Philly summer of 2010. And uh, we are literally just learning from scratch everything. It's, you know, how do you, how do you manufacture ceramics? Who do we know who can tell us how to manufacture ceramics? Who do we talk to who has a contact who might know someone else who knows someone else? And so through just simply putting ourselves out there and putting our needs out there um, and, and uh, fortunately being able to convince some people of the solvable vision, uh, we're able to line up some manufacturing contacts that, that help us get prototypes and um, line us up with a, with a sursing agency that can that can uh, start making the salsible from a sketch on a napkin to a physical product. And uh, nice. That, with- that was a hot summer, by the way. I, I was actually, uh, I was actually about, I don't know, maybe it's 200 miles to the west of you that summer in Pittsburgh, uh, living in a slightly less cramped, but I was living with 
with two guys, it was sorry, with, with you know, two other guys in a two bedroom apartment in, uh, in, in Pittsburgh, working on my first startup, Speaker Text. And I remember that was very hot summer because we didn't have air conditioning and we would try to do calls with investors, but we didn't have like a headset or anything. And so we, we would, and we didn't have a phone, so we had to use Skype. And I had kind of this like crappy older map, MacBook. And so like the speaker's really, really tiny. So you'd have to like put your kind of head down to try sort of like talk to them. And then across the street, there was a gas station. And uh, I guess in Pittsburgh, motorcycle gangs are a big thing. So they would be like, you know, these guys on Harleys who'd come by like, you know, 20 of them revving the engines going around the fucking block. And, and we'd be on the phone trying to talk to investors, you know, and we'd often be Skyping. So, you know, it would be video and what you have to hold your composure. You have to hold your composure and, and we'd have to lower the windows because we'd have to have the phone call. So we'd just get baking hot. And we would, I remember we'd switch off because when we switch off, like as soon as you got off out of the video view, you'd take your shirt off, you know, cause it was just, it was so freaking hot. Yeah. That's, uh, that's one of the first life lessons for entrepreneurs is how to, how to exit a video call without showing that you're not wearing any pants. Yes, ab absolutely. My friend. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a very hot summer. So, all right. Uh, okay. We, we derailed here. Um, so you're, you, you got some manufacturers in the salsa bowl business lined up who are interested and want to work with these young, budding, brilliant businessmen. Yeah. And so we, uh, we, we figure out how much it's going to cost, which is like, I think our first production run is going to be, you know, $15,000. And so we scrape together all of our pennies and we go and we find some major investors who invest, uh, you know, like between 1500 and $1,800 each in this, in this, in this endeavor. Um, and we make we we make our first run of salsables, and um, we don't have any place to put them in Philly. So so Tom's grandfather has a basically like little workshop garage thing out on the uh, Jersey Shore, and so we have our first tiny little production run delivered to the doorstop of this house. And I just remember sitting on the doorstop for three days because uh, you know this is this is shipping this is ocean multi multimodal containers like it's not exactly <laughs> it's not like UPS next day air where they're gonna come between 10 and 2 it's it's uh, it takes a little bit of time and so and so we're not a warehouse we don't have a warehouse dock we just have to sit there and we just sit on this stoop for three days waiting for these bowls to show up and uh, they finally do and they're delivered and we have them and 40% of them are deformed or defective to the point where we're not going to be able to sell them. Ouch. There's this, there's this moment where, where we, we, they unload the pallets, and we've just trucked all these pallets up a second-story flight of stairs into the attic of this little workshop, and, and we rip one of them open, and I look inside, and we pull it out, and, and it's, it's, in this, it's in this white box with no packaging because we had never even considered what packaging would be like. And it's just gotten made in China, stamped in like impact fonts and 48 points high on the side of the box. They rip this thing open and it's just this rather oddly shaped bowl. <laughs> it's just not going to fly to our quality control standards. Um, and so thus began uh, the long saga of um, retouching, reboxing, and sorting every single piece of product that we had, all, all 3,000 of them in this hot attic. Uh, 
But, you know, we had these bowls, and the next question was, how do we sell them? Like, honestly, how do we sell them? I have no idea. So I built a website for the salsa bowl, and, and um, we just put them up on the Internet, and you learn the second rule of entrepreneurship after not wearing pants is uh, you can't just fart anything out on the Internet and expect people to buy it. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was the second struggle. I mean, like, just, just getting the product made to a point where you have something physical in your hands was, was a... a incredible learning experience and it was a chapter that we had, you know, it's like you start, you read the first couple pages of the chapter and then you skip to the end and like, oh, I know that one. So that's, that's about the amount of information that we had covered in that little segment and now we're just skipping ahead to chapter two which is, uh, alright, so you've got something that vaguely resembles your vision, uh, how do we sell it? And so that involved learning how to code a website and putting that up on the internet and then um, emailing your friends saying, hey, does anybody know anyone that wants to buy one of these? Go to salsable.com, which is still in existence. You can see what uh, version, well, it's like version three or four at this point of, of our website, but it's, it's one of the very early masterpieces that I was able to create. Um, and so that, that in itself was also a struggle with selling the Salsable, but just through, just through dedication, I mean, persistence really, an absolute enormous amount of persistence to get... Uh, to get anybody considering buying these bowls um, was required, and we were actually selling quite a few bowls. I mean, we had to order more production runs of them. We we ended up, you know, kind of getting the QC a little bit under control and and ordering full containers of salsa bowls. We're talking like a 20 foot container that's it's 15 feet high, and um, and uh, getting these things, you know, shipped into a warehouse that we finally set up is fulfilling our orders and. Um, we were in some retail stores, some mom and pop ones, and sort of the we realized that the writing was on the wall when we finally landed William Sonoma, and um, William Sonoma was going to start carrying the salsa bowl. We were we were in talks with them, and uh, the problem is is that, um, like I said right at the beginning, margins are very important when you're in the consumer product business, and so we were selling these bowls for sixteen dollars a piece. And they cost us like four or five dollars to make, and another couple bucks to land them. And so William Sonoma wanted to buy them for less than what it cost us to make them. Or maybe I think we might have had like a couple cent profit margin. I was just doing the math in my head. It's like, okay, if we move a million bowls, I might be able to pay rent this year. Like that was that was that was the best case scenario. And that's when we kind of realized we had some trouble. Um, that and one of the one of my favorite mistakes I've ever made was. Uh, uh, kind of a death knell for the Salsable dream was when um, one of our major catalogs wanted to refresh the bowl to put it in for another year because you always, I mean, retail world, you always have to have something new every single season. So, so they wanted to make a chip and dip set. So we made a platter to go along with the Salsable. And this plate was uh, extremely expensive to manufacture. It was very nice. It's a big, heavy bamboo plate. And we wanted to make the bare minimum, but like shipping containers across the ocean is really expensive. So we wanted to also be efficient with it. So I remember this email comes in from the manufacturer and, and we're ordering like 1,200 of these bowls because that's how many the catalog says they need. And um, the, our manufacturer says that the container can hold like 1,800. So we were like, okay, so we up our order by like 800 more bowl plates. Um, and then the container arrives to our warehouse, and, and the warehouse guy is like, yeah, we're looking for the container. I'm like, yeah, it should be a 20-foot container. There's a couple st standard sizes for containers. They're like 20 feet, 40 feet, and then some awkward sizes. And I'm saying, look, look for the 20-foot container. It's, it should be out there. The trucker literally just called me. So he's at this. Like, I don't see anything but a 40-foot container on the end of a, on a truck. I'm like, wait, a what? Yeah, one 40-foot truck sitting in, the, sitting in the parking lot. Like, oh, my God. 
turns out that uh, the, the cutoff for loading a container is like 1,150 units, and we needed 1,200. And I had just misinterpreted a single line of a single email and ended up ordering like $25,000 worth of inventory that we didn't need and couldn't sell. Um, and uh, that was when we kind of went very cash shy. The business was, the, the, the airplane was sort of coming at the ground really quickly. And uh, we always thought you're scraping the tail when, when you're, you're, you're trying to pull back up, but you just barely scrape along with a couple hundred bucks for the bank account at that time. Um, and that was how Sunski was born. It was in that moment of do or die desperation where we had maybe a month and a half left of rent and ramen saved up and, and absolutely no plans for, like not even enough rent money saved up to be able to look for a job to start paying your next month's rent. It was kind of just like we do this now or we die sort of thing. And so um, during during this whole time when, when Tom and I were living out of his parents' house in Philly and we had, we'd, we'd, in this story, frame, we had moved to San Francisco because it's where I had grown up and we wanted to live the dream. I wanted to be able to ski and Tom wanted to be able to surf and there's not a lot of places in the U.S. where you can do that in the same urban location. Um, San Francisco is one of them. So, and what, and Aaron, what time What time frame are we talking about? Like what year is this? So this is, so this is actually, I mean it's actually a pretty compact story. So Tom and I lived in Philly in September, or sorry, uh, through September, that, that summer of 2010. And then in September I moved back to my parents' house in San Francisco, and Tom actually, it was a, it was a nice time, there wasn't a lot going on, um, we had been selling salsals out of his warehouse, Tom had gone on a surf trip through Australia, and um, he had come back and he had these cool sunglasses that he had bought at a thrift store on the beach, and um, we actually first moved to Tahoe in January, and we lived there during the 800-ish season, because you know we're trying to live the dream, so we'd been working out of just this little shack in Tahoe, uh, working on the salsa bowl, and we'd wake up in the morning, answer emails, go skiing for like six hours, and come back and work in the evening. We'd go to the Red Box and rent like Piranha 3D for the third time, because you'd watch a movie every night, and we'd watch a movie and go to bed, and then go skiing. It was a, it was a great, simple time. Um, poor and simple time, but you know, we're doing exactly what we wanted to be doing. And then that, that after that season hit in 2011, it was like April or May, we moved into an apartment together in San Francisco. And that's when we were living out of the living room. That's when, we, that's when I was making these mistakes about ordering too many, too many salsable plates. And um, we actually lived there for a year working on the salsable and just barely scraping by. And it was, it was the spring of 2012 when the, the airplane was coming in with no fuel and we were just going to crash land on and burst into flames. And, um, for like the last two years, Tom had just been sitting on these kind of fun-looking neon-colored sunglasses that he'd just been wearing around town and had a couple extra pairs in a bag. And, and uh, so many people thought that they were cool. They were like, you know what? Falsable is not working. Um, it's 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 just the margins aren't there. As, as we love being, we we love Tom and I love being outside. I mean, that's that's one of our huge hobbies and passions is just skiing and surfing and hiking and, and just getting out there and after it and uh, we kind of realized that that this is what we wanted to do but we couldn't really translate this marketing through the salsable because because it was for like middle-aged housewives essentially was the, was the demographic that we were trying to sell to and we'd be trying to do things like yeah like like salsable you can you can have a picnic outside in the sun and so 
yeah, we're we're trying to tie it to some charitable causes, so we're donating to like you know through one percent for the planet, and and we're trying to get all this environmental stuff on board, and it's just not really resonating with anyone because it's like a serving platter, <laughs> not, yeah, right. you know, not really cool. Um, and so that that there, there's sort of a click, you know. And, and Tom had been saying like, hey, these sunglasses are cool. These sunglasses are cool. There might be something here, and I'm just thinking, yeah, but like the salsable is here, and we and, you know we've got a lot of them. So like this, dude, is, we have. So much salsa ball right now. We've got to sell the shit out of these things. Yeah, what like are you we got about. We got a big problem. We can't just abandon this. We're so deep in the hole. It's like, no, we got we got to just try this. And so, so I finally I finally agreed. And and um, it just it, it it's kind of amazing. You know when something is going to be a success simply from how naturally it all comes. And we just we just started thinking like, how are we going to position these sunglasses? How are we going to market them? Who's the customer? It's like the customer is us. And the customer loves what we love, and we're just going to make exactly what we want, and we're going to find people like us, and we're going to sell it to them, and and we're going to pitch it in a way that 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 we like, and then since we're finding people who are like us, those people are going to like it, um, and so that that was essentially the the tactic that we took for our for our Kickstarter campaign and 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 for our marketing slant, and um, we thought that we might you know. We thought we might sell a couple hundred pairs of glasses to friends and friends of friends, and just just enough to get. I mean, look, like we were not trying to start a business. We were trying to make a couple more months worth of rent so that we could book for real jobs and you know get out of this this thinking shift that we kind of built for ourselves. Um, and we we since we had all the manufacturing contacts set up and everything, this was this was just a you know we could do one off almost out of this with with not a lot of um, not a lot of overhead. Uh, but what ended up happening is we put this on Kickstarter and it just struck a nerve. I mean, this was the, the, the timing was right, the platform was right, the message was right, the audience was right, and, and we sold like 10,000 sunglasses. And um, we just kind of took a step back and was like, whoa, we, we have found something here that is more than what we thought it was. I think that this deserves a little bit more of our attention. Um, and that was essentially the birth of Sunski. We are, are, you know, if, if the trajectory of our business was kind of salsable, just sort of doing this, Sunski and that Kickstarter campaign sort of jumped us up an order of magnitude in terms of relevance and importance and budget. And, um, and, and that was really the birth of, of this brand, which is now a, a, taking on sort of a life of its own outside of Tom and my efforts. And so, uh, so how many salsables were you guys selling? Um, a, a month back back in those days. I think we were probably selling about 150 to 300 bowls a month. Um, you know, at like a price, an average price of like eleven dollars a bowl. So we were making a couple thousand dollars a month, um, which was rent and ramen. And uh, you know, we'd get really excited when like a six thousand dollar order would come in because that would mean that we could pay rent for like two months. Um, yeah. And then this Kickstarter campaign comes through with like one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and and just like what this can't and believe well, it. And so you're selling salsa bowls uh, for eleven bucks a pop, and then how much are you selling these sunglasses for? We're selling sunglasses for about thirty uh, thirty dollars. Um, they had pretty nice packaging. They're all polarized. They're using the same polycarbonate formulation, so so they're pretty durable. Um, and and for all intents and purposes, it was a great deal. I mean, you couldn't really get branded sunglasses for that price outside of a outside of Costco. You know, Kirkland Signature is your brand, and, and no one else was really doing it. Um, 
<laughs> so we sort of created a niche market that hadn't existed before. And uh, and how much, if you can share, if you can, I totally understand. How, how much did it cost you to to make these thirty dollars sunglasses? The margins are confidential, but what I will say is that the people who are making one hundred fifty dollars sunglasses are making an enormous amount of money. Um, that that is straight markup, not not any you know super expensive manufacturing process that's twice as expensive as ours. Yeah, no, I mean 30, 30 bones for a good pair of sunglasses. That's totally reasonable. You know, like I'm thinking, like if I go to Marshalls or something and like pick up a pair of sunglasses, if you ever need to buy running shoes, by the way, or running running shorts, go to Marshalls. Marshalls, great, great spot. And and they occasionally also have sunglasses as well. Um, that's how much you're paying, maybe twenty to forty five. So, all right. So legit, like affordable sunglasses, not the not the cheapy knockoffs that you're gonna get from the the dude on the street, but uh, affordable, quality branded sunglasses for thirty bucks a pop, and sounds like probably better margins than your your uh your your salsa bowl business. Yes, we were making you know we were making decent margins. Um, we were moving volume, which is also important, and. Uh, the reason why it succeeded was was because we had you know we had the timing right like the world was ready for this uh, for for you know people were ready for sunglasses the technology was right so that we could be a small brand we could just go in and make sunglasses I mean like ten years ago this would have been impossible but but you know now there's enough infrastructure supporting small to medium sized manufacturing businesses that, that we had the capability of producing this product um, and then. And then there's this shift that's been going on, especially in the outdoor industry, and especially among sort of like the millennial, younger generation that we were targeting, which is that, um, you know, we are constantly bombarded by by thousands and thousands of different products every single day, from from you know the retargeting ads you're getting served on Amazon to just your keyword searches to when you're checking your email or you're watching an ad before you're trying to watch a cat video. I mean, like. You might be trying to watch a funny advertisement, and you're watching an ad through that advertisement. I mean, it's like there's no end to the amount of of merchandising that's done to people because advertising is the only successful internet model that's ever really been proven as of yet. Um, and I think our generation is extremely good at recognizing bullshit, and everybody wants something that actually means something to them, and so. We told a story with these glasses. I mean, and it was an authentic story. So people, you know, people would try to sniff around for a fake, and it just wasn't there. It was, it was Tom. You know, you, you dig and dig and dig, and you find Tom on a surfboard on the west coast of Australia, living out of a tent. Like, like that. It, it's entirely true. And um, the sentimentality that we were able to imbue these products with was something that I think, I think, you know, we now see industries moving in this direction. You know, and retail industry moving this direction. But it was. It was that we we sold a product, but we also, you know, it's fashion. Like people people want it to mean something, and and we sold an authentic story, at a good price, to people who would appreciate it. And it that that's the nerve that we struck, and that's why it succeeded um, at the way that it did. And and that was sort of the form. It's like look, like we got to just keep making good stuff at a reasonable price, with a fully authentic and awesome story behind them. Um, and and that's really been the formula that Sunski has just used since that little Kickstarter campaign to 
you know, millions of dollars a year in, in sales. And so let's, I, I, I just want to step back for a second. Um, you said something I thought was really interesting. You said, you know, you couldn't have done this 10 years ago. So then there's now, you know, this like manufacturing infrastructure that's available for small and medium sized businesses that just didn't exist. That sounds really interesting. Talk, talk to me about that. Like what's, what's the story there? Um, I mean, obviously the internet, you know, is something that is fantastic and enables a lot, uh, especially when you've got, uh, you know, obviously in 2005, people had the ability to communicate with China. Um, you know, people were definitely emailing their reps over there and checking on the status of things and they would send pictures back and whatnot. But, but it wasn't, there was nothing really set up to be, um, accessible to, the end user in the way that, that we now have. Um, it's things like uh, freight forwarders would not would not have thought to be consolidating less than container loads um, with small businesses because how would they advertise that? You know, how are they even going to get their small businesses to work with them? Like, how do you even advertise the fact that you provide this service? Um, people like like I mean that that's the the, uh, the so reason like, what, why. What websites are we talking about here? Like, we're actually we're not. I don't think we're talking about websites because it's not like you can just go on, you know, make something in China. I mean, you might be, there might be something like that, but I haven't found anyone who's had success with it. You can't, it's all still extremely relationship based. Like this entire process is about relationships and reputations. You know, if, if, if a, if a company lo loses your container over the side of a boat and, and, and doesn't take steps to make that right, like everybody in the industry knows about it and they lose business. Like it's, it's it, there's not enough players to have some like crazy commoditized like Yelp for factories, which you know may someday come out to be, but um, we'll probably have 3D printing before that. But um, it, what it really is is, is it's that all these companies sort of realize that that there's markets outside of like the major players that they've been working with, and so and so some. Um, they're they're oriented towards being able to serve smaller clients, which is not, I mean, you would never be able to place a, a uh, you know, a, a $8,000 solvable order uh, until very recently because, because, you know, what shipping company even cares to move that product from the factory to the port? And then what, what ocean freight company is going to care to figure out, you know, how do we bundle this with other product into a container and move it across the ocean? Um, and and so that that's sort of what I'm talking about. I mean, it might not be like you couldn't have done this ten years ago, but you definitely couldn't have done it fifteen years ago. Um, and and so it, it I think it takes time for industries to sort of adapt to new technology. And so and so we're now seeing much more of what we're doing in in, in the outdoor industry and in the retail industries. You're seeing a lot more smaller independent brands that are able to sort of the the other thing I think, and I think actually now that I'm thinking about it, one of the most important things is not so much the fact that these companies exist to service us, but that you can do it with such little overhead. I mean, is for, for the first two and a half years, it was only Tom and I. And the amount of sort of uh, software as a service um, applications that run over the internet that you can use, the accounting software, um, you know, task management, like, like this would require 15 people and 10 secretaries, you know, before, before all these new, you know, you got you got customer support and a dashboard that, that, that you can just work on one to two hours at a time as opposed to like 
answering letters or, or even answering emails, which we found just didn't work because your inbox is now, who, who are you talking to? Is it a customer, a retailer, you know, just some random guy off the street? Um, and so I think, I think also it allowed Tom and I to sort of be able to be the ramen startup guys like living month to month while also running a fairly sophisticated organization from a, from a logistics standpoint. Um, you know, you've got, you've got 10 time zones and 10,000 miles separating you from your, your manufacturer and yet you're able to stay on top of that in addition to like run a entire multimedia marketing package to your end customer and keep those customers satisfied and ensure that the, the warehouse is getting their products to them on time and, and you know, it's that, that I think is people can do so much more now with so much less than I imagine they had to work with even a decade ago. And I think that's really the key to why businesses like ours can exist now. And so if someone, I'm sure there's people in the audience who have dreams like this, who think like, man, I'd love to do this. If someone's starting off today, like what are the tools, what are the resources? I mean, you guys had to go from zero to one here. Like what, did you like call your rich uncle? Like what, what was, what was the first step you guys took or what was the, if not the first step, what was the first productive step? I'm sure you guys had a lot of wasted ones too. And I mean, but they're not wasted because they teach you what not to do. I mean, I, that, that, that's what I think is that you're going to screw it all up. And um, that is just, it, so, so really I think the, the most important thing that you can do is you can find someone who's already screwed up a lot of them and they can tell you, if, if, if at least not what to do, they can tell you what not to do. Um, but our first, that was literally our first productive step. Our first productive step was, was um, Tom calling, you know, talking to his parents, talking to his friends and just saying like, do you know anybody who can make anything? Do you know anybody who makes things? Because you don't even know the vocabulary they need to be using. It's just like, how do you make things? And it's like, well, you should talk to Fred. He makes mugs. Okay, well, let's go call Fred, and then we set up a meeting with Fred. And you know, Fred's been working in China for forty years, and it's—I it's, mean, there's there's people all around you, who um, who uh, can help you, and you just don't know it because you don't know what questions to ask, or you don't even know of their existence. Um, and so I think I think one of the best exercises that Tom and I did right off the bat was we literally made a list of every single person that we knew, and then tried to sort that list into who of these people are doing things that may be relevant or they may have information or they may be able to help us and and then you just start using that list every time you know you, you hit a wall and it's like who do we know who might be able to introduce us to someone who can solve our problem or help point us in the right direction or introduce us to someone else who can solve our problem and you do that long enough and you build a pretty big Rolodex of resources and um, it's most I mean it's not resources like cash you know we've, we've bootstrapped our company to this day uh, it's resources, which is information, which is at the end of the day, the most important resource you can really get your hands on as a business owner. Um, but so it sounds like even, even more than information, it's relationships. It yes, sounds like what you're saying. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But, it, but it, it's not about, you know, I, I'm just, I'm trying to make it not sound like, you know, it's like step one, don't be poor. You know, that's, that's not the, that's not how to do it. It's, it's, um, it is relationships, and it's it's honestness in those relationships. It's earnestness. It's it's um. It's you know we didn't know anybody, really. You know we had we had our college peers, and then you know our parents who had really you know they were not 
captains of industry or, or anything. They just they just knew people who were older, you know, and so those people who are older know people who you know, have been around longer and they they just know more people and so you just you just um you, know, you you just approach these people and you have a clear mission and a, and, a, and a and a clear eagerness to understand. I think I think that you know I, I find this actually in a lot of things is that there are everybody wants to share what they know for the most part. Um, you know just just because it's either pride or uh, or this desire to to have this sort of like a almost apprenticeship drive to pass on your wisdom. You know maybe this has been instinctually ingrained in humans since the dawn of our species is to just pass along information because that's what got us here and so people are just remarkably eager to share information I mean they might not be like oh yeah and I'll also give you some money to do that but they'll be like hey like let me let me tell you what I know and um, that that's what we found was the most valuable thing that's awesome I it's and it's interesting too because you know uh, that's definitely very much how Silicon Valley works. And I've always wondered to what extent that's true outside of the valley. You know, like here, like I'm I'm talking to you literally, you know, from my from my home office slash garage in Menlo Park, you know, California. Uh, you know, Stanford's like half a half a mile away from me. Um but I feel like this place is so special because people are so willing to to sort of like go out on limb and take a flyer and take a meeting with some like random person who for all intents and purposes is probably a waste of your time or might not, you know, do anything or go anywhere. But sometimes those people are amazing, you know? Um, and for me, I, I feel like I've been so helped by so many people, you know, sort of paying it forward that I, it's now instinctual. It's now something I feel like I owe it to people. I owe it to the world to, to sort of pat, pay it forward in the way that I was helped. Um, and I always, I've always wondered how much that's true in other industries. Cause I feel like this place is special, but it's not completely unique. Like these are still fundamental human urges to, to share information, to tell our story, to, to, to to be the expert you know there's vanity in that it's it's cool to be the guy that people someone's looking at looking at looking up to um now that you guys are based in san francisco have you noticed that the vibe is different at all does this do you see this like varying from geography to geography how, how do you think about that so i mean just just to you know answer your question of does this happen outside of you know silicon valley i, I mean to give a little bit of context our first meetings about how to manufacture were in South Philly. This is about it's about as far as you can get from Silicon Valley, and we were we were encountering people who were full of information and willing to help and and knew exactly what to do. So, um, I, I I truly think that that no matter where you are, you're going to be able to muster the resources within your community to to get you to where you need to be. I mean, it might be that you need to meet someone who's outside your immediate if you're in York, Nebraska, you might need to meet someone who's who's outside of York, Nebraska, but there's going to be someone nearby you who's going to be able to point you in the right direction. So there's really no excuses why you can't, you know, why you can't find the information that you need. Um, as far as to answer your question about about you know being in San Francisco, I think it's actually a really interesting thing for our brand to be here. Um, 
because we are an outdoor brand and we are not a technology brand. We don't really benefit from technology. We are at the heart of, you know, like 50% of all venture capital in the world comes through Silicon Valley and we are bootstrapped entirely. Um, and quite frankly, we moved here because, um, because I wanted to be close to the mountains and Tom wanted to be close to the beach. Full stop. I mean, I, we wanted to be in an urban area. I mean, like, that, that's, that's the beginning and the end. There's no considerations made to, like, um, you know, the, the startup-friendly environment that's here. And um, what we've actually found is that it may be almost not a hindrance, but it, it's certainly not a help because uh, we find that we're not using the resources that are available here as much as we are. This is a difficult concept to, to enunciate, but I'm going to try. It's, it's that you're almost overshadowed by the startup culture, by being a startup here, and, and, and it almost works to your detriment, which is that it is not special. What you're doing is not special, and, and um, you know, it, you're just rather unremarkable, as opposed to I can imagine being in other areas where you know, being a startup would be cool and you'd be able to uniquely stand out either in your marketing or your ability to, to get help or muster resources, whereas here you're just, I mean, it's, it's a, almost a foregone conclusion that you're a small business in San Francisco, you know, trying to do the thing. And so, and so what we've actually had to do is we've had to um, sort of carve out, especially being a product design company and a, and a retail-oriented company in the land of internet, you know, we sell we sell things, physical things for money. You know, it's it's like a it's a it's a new concept in some ways for the area. Um, and I'm I'm saying this, you know, coming from having worked at Facebook and having worked at you know other social networking startups for like my whole life essentially. So I, I it's interesting to be able to juxtapose those things mentally in my head. Um, but what we've had to do is we've had to sort of carve out a new niche here, and um, Sunski has actually been rather instrumental in sort of building a new community of retail-oriented outdoor industry businesses that just happen to be in the Bay Area, um, and there's a lot. Uh, and and so so we have our we do a, an industry party every year called Outdoor San Francisco. And we, we invite people and we invite businesses and, and we have other businesses that are working along fast to throw this and it's just, it's just a way that, um, that the Bay Area is getting a lot of outdoor companies now and, and, and we're having to kind of find that, that it's really important to know that because it's this, it's this niche within a larger startup ocean basically uh, that most of the time doesn't apply to what, what Retail. I mean, this is very industry specific. So this is this is my own personal experiences with running an outdoor retail company. It's that um, the way that you grow an outdoor retail company is very different from the way you grow a technology company. Um, you know, we're about incremental growth as opposed to you know long incubation with high overhead and high staffing costs, and then an explosion into you know a 200x growth for several years, and then an acquisition. Like that's that's not how in retail and, industry. And works. just curious, why? Why do this inside industry stuff? Why are you? Why does it help your business, or does it help your business to have these relationships with sensibly competitors? Like, why? Why? I think a lot of owners would say, "Hey, I'm not. I'm just. I just want to sell. I just want to be about me and do my thing." But you're saying, "Hey, we want to be at the center of the, of a movement, and you know that's valuable for us, or at least it's 
it's interesting for us. Why do you guys do that? What's like the strategic logic there? No, it, it's extremely valuable, actually. It probably it probably is directly attributable to an enormous amount of our success. Now, maybe like the plurality of our success is simply due to what can really be just defined as an extension or an extrapolation of our of our of how we started, which is seeking out people who know information and making sure that you maintain those relationships. Um, we do not. I mean. We we are partnered with businesses on the same scale as us, you know, in, in a in a couple percentage points up and down. And um, what we find is that is that when we share information, the the our whole is greater than the sum of our contributions. Um, several small companies can band together and accomplish something because they're able to combine their own unique customer groups, their own resources, their own niches that they have specialty in, and then you can combine to create like a marketing campaign or a party or or an event or or a co-branded product line that, that can come out of literally nowhere. And um, you, each, each one can benefit way more than what they put in, but they can only benefit if everyone plays together. There's, there's Tom in the background if you guys are... Uh, you know, you're on live there, Tom. Oh my God! Where's the cutting board? <laughs> the cutting board? Yeah. Why do we need a cutting board? Uh, don't, worry don't worry about it. I am worried about it now. Uh, right. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I got into this. Uh, Twitter fight is a, is a is, is too strong a term, but a, a Twitter a Twitter bicker. Discussion. Uh, 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 yeah, a Twitter, Twitter kerfluffle, let's call it, um, with someone who is talking about the, um, the lack of diversity in technology, in the technology industry there, this person was, a was an engineer, I believe. And they were saying like, Hey, you know, there's the odds, you know, uh, African-American, the odds are, are, are stacked against us. And, um, you know, we, we don't. There's not enough people like us. We're, you know, I'm, we're isolated. I'm, I'm isolated. I, I don't fit in. I'm not like everyone else. And my advice to this person was say, hey, you know, why don't you find people like you, and create a community, your own community. You know, just because you're not, you don't look like the sort of the dominant, you know, group, or you, you just because your community doesn't have power create a community and put yourself at the center of it. And in so doing through banding together, you can get power and, and, and together, you know, as individuals where we don't have much, right? I mean, how we, as a society, as a, our power is in our civilization is in our tools and what we can do together. You know, man alone is a pretty with, without tools is a pretty useless beast. Um, but together, networked, you know, with tools, I mean, there's almost infinite amount that we can do and accomplish. Um, now, this person didn't really appreciate that commentary, uh, but I, just, I feel like this is the playbook. Like, there's all, you know, for most, most people are going to feel like outsiders on some level. They're going to feel like, they don't belong, you know, for whatever reason. And the, you know, it could be because you're doing a bootstrap physical products company in, you know, like in San Francisco where it's all tech startups 
going to, you know, trying to be unicorns, you know, it could be, you know, like you're a, a woman who doesn't know how to code who wants to do a startup. You know, you could be, you know, you could be an immigrant who doesn't speak English and, you know, barely speaks English and is trying to make something. Um, but, and, and, and some of those challenges are, are, are a lot harder than others. And, and I don't want to downplay that, but I, I feel like this concept of creating community of, of, of finding your tribe and banding together is, is so powerful. And I just, I, I didn't know that story that, that that's what you guys are doing, but I I love to hear it because it just it seems like that's something that's so replicable for anybody you know who's trying to to build something from scratch, who's trying to create a movement or or make something that that doesn't exist exist today. But what's what's your take on that? Is that something that is just unique to you guys, you know, or is that something that a playbook that other people can can apply in in, in other situations that are similar yeah, but not the same i mean i i think i mean i i firmly believe that that just just not being afraid to ask for help is really the only the only i mean there's a lot of different traits that you're going to need but like asking for help is one of the most important things or like you the reason why people don't start things is because they don't know how to do them like there there, there is no like would-be entrepreneurs sitting on their couch going man i really wish i was you know the first place in this industry or whatever. It, but I know exactly how to do it. I just wish I was there, but I'm not. It's like the people who are who are looking to get started can't because they don't know how. And and that's just that's just the first barrier. It's just like what do I do? And and that's that's a question that I've been confronting still do to this day. I mean, I'm sitting here and I've got a, a a S business trying to break into the M business category, and and I've never done this before. And so it's 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 not about you know, nobody knows until they ask, and no one knows until they figure it out. And so, so even now, I am still having to find the people who have the information and and and, and who have been there and made the mistakes and learn from them and say, what what do I do now? What's your recommendation? Find someone else. What's your recommendation? Get all these recommendations, and then, you know, you, what what you do as an individual, where where you actually come in, is the ability to synthesize all the different strategies and say, well, you know, I think that pick a couple elements from here and mix in that. I think this is going to be the best way forward. It might not be, you know, and there's your mistake. Okay, that wasn't the best way forward. But the way that you got to that plan was from getting help from other people. Um, and you're never going to get a plan that's going to be like, okay, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and then you need to, you know, step step one, steal underpants, step two, question mark, step three, profit. Like, that's that's never, it's always the question marks you need to fill in, and that has to come from you. Um, but But it's going to be guided by the expertise of others. And so, and so that is really, it can be things where like I'll be asking people who make soap, you know, because because even though they make soap, they still have to deal with supply chain problems, and and they have just as valid ideas on warehousing. Um, I um, I was a mentor for a vibrator company at the Haas School of Business uh, startup challenge, and they won. Um, That's awesome. It, it's it's the knowledge is fungible, like like you. You need to think a little bit more laterally about how people can help you, other than like, oh, oh my God, I can't, I haven't, you know, I can't continue knowing what to do because I haven't found a guy with a sunglasses business that does ten million dollars a year to tell me how to get my sunglasses business there. It's like no, like you can, you can go to. There's a lot of different answers to, to your questions, provided you know, the right questions to ask. Um, Did you ever think of quitting? 
did you or, 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 or Tom, did you ever guys ever think like seriously about just being like, okay, we're done. This is. Yeah, you know, that's that. I think the recession without, without having, you know, I, I was an economist in college and, um, you, know, you learn about opportunity costs and like Econ 101, which is the value of whatever resource if it was being used in another way. In terms of humans, it's, it's you know, you can either work for Sponsible and make no money or you can go work for company XYZ and make this amount of money. Um, the way that, that calculation worked out during the recession was such that they're really, I mean, you can either delete porn for $11 an hour or you can be broke and enjoy your job at Sponsible. Like, it's a pretty easy equation. I imagine to say someone graduating from the class of 2015 into a super hot market, you know, from Stanford, it's like, well, do you want to be broke and bootstrap your own company or do you want to just go work for Google at, you know, a cool 120 G's opening salary with some units thrown in? I mean, so for me, no, because quitting, like, I was at least enjoying what I was doing. I was feeling challenged and like, yeah, I was poor, but my alternatives were, were to be poor and not enjoy what I was doing because I, I had already, you know, engaged at that level with my first job. Um, and now, luckily, we're at the point where, like, a we, we enjoy what we're doing. We're also successful, so it's it's now the dream. Um, so no, I don't, I don't, I mean, because it, it, there's always a grind. I mean, like that's anyone who started a business knows that that if you don't think that you're going to pay your dues by just grinding away all day every day, beating your head against the wall, like there, there's never an easy path to success unless you get really, really lucky, and that's like you might as well be playing the lotto if that's your plan. Um, and so, and so I can imagine that, that being in a really hot economy where there's a lot of different options and you, you, could, you could see that you would succeed, you know, you can constantly be comparing your career path to what you'd be doing if you had chosen a different option. I think that that would be a lot more difficult. And I don't actually know how, how I would deal with a situation like that where I could be put into my shoes, you know, six years ago, but, but in today's economic climate. Yeah, it's it's funny. I um, so once upon a time, I I used to fight forest fires. Um, I dropped out of Berkeley twice, fought forest fires as a paramedic, uh, and then I went to Columbia and and finished school there. Um, but I remember this very very vivid experience. I was almost called the Hotshot Crew. It's kind of like the Marine Corps of the fire. Yeah, and um, Actually, uh, that one wasn't based on Tahoe, but I, I did another in Tahoe. Anyway, so we had this old school superintendent, the, the, the crew boss, and we're on this fire in, in central Washington. And there's, you know, like several hundred people in this fire camp, and you can kind of freelance and find like a good spot to sleep. And all these other crews were sleeping in this big meadow. And we'd drive by, you'd work 16 hour days every day for like 14 days, 21 days straight. And this is like backbreaking labor. So you're really working hard. And then at the end of the day, okay, we're gonna spike out, we're gonna camp out. And there's this meadow and I would look and I would just sort of like drool. Cause it was, you, you could see this like soft, soft grass, you know, this like a pillow top of grass. And, and then, we we would we would not go to the meadow and the meadow was like heaven and all the other crews were the meadow and we went to this gravel pit and i was so pissed off it was like the height of stupidity why in god's name would we sleep in the fucking gravel pit this is this is horrible uh, is rocks and 
And then about halfway into our assignment, we got helicoptered into the backcountry. Uh, there's been like a, a helicopter crash and we had to do like body retrieval. Um, and we were sleeping in the dirt. And I remember sleeping in the dirt being like, ah, oh, dude, this is so much better than the gravel pit. This is, ah, uh, yes, this, this dirt thing is awesome. And I remember reflecting on that at one point and it was, and it was so instrumental because it had to do with sort of like the relativity of perception, the relativity of comfort. You know, when you're coming from the gravel pit, the dirt is like awesome, you know, but if you've been coming from a hotel, if you've been coming from, you know, even the soft grass, you know, sleeping in the dirt would have sucked. Um, and I feel like that's true in, 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 in so much of life, you know, uh, especially in entrepreneurship where things can be hard, but it really depends, you know, I mean, what your baseline is. And, and it sounds like that's, that's, that's at least part of the lesson of what, what you're telling us today here. Yeah. I, I, I like your allegory. It reminds me of, it was like, I think it was like a Steve, or it was like a Wozniak quote and um, something along the lines of, of like all startups should be done in, in uh, non-air-conditioned, non-heated warehouses on uncomfortable stools. Um, like you, you kind of just need to be a little bit uncomfortable in order to succeed and to be hungry and to sort of recognize what success looks like. I mean, when we moved out of our living room into an office, you know, it's this little, first office was this little like, 190 square foot thing that we could barely fill our stuff in, but it wasn't the living room, you know. So that was success. Like it was this tangible reward, um, and yeah, I I completely agree with what you're saying. Uh, I just think that you gotta be very mental. You have to have a lot of mental fortitude to be able to commit yourself to the discomfort that's going to be required to succeed at a startup. If you're going to be taking like a bootstrapping route, um, if you're raising money, you know, you might be able to afford some more creature comforts right off the bat. But uh, I, I think there is something very, um, you see it throughout cultures where you've got the people who are working the hard, you've got, you got the Buddhist monks kneeling on concrete for 10 hours a day. You have, you have people who are truly working hard are not afraid of the discomfort that that hard work entails. I mean, or, 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 I mean, that's one way to put it. Or you just have to be desperate, right? I yeah, mean, or desperate. I mean, I, I'll I'll make no. I was desperate. We were desperate. We were so desperate. I mean, the Sunskis literally came from desperation. But it was this. It was this ability to focus your panic into productivity as opposed to into, you know, ruin. Um, and and I think that again, it's it's just you got to be very mentally focused on you know, failure is not an option. That's why I think entrepreneurs like you can kind of think through all the steps and you can really be like, yeah, that's me or no, that's not me. And, and you know, you kind of have to know, yeah, that's me. Um, How instrumental was Tom to this? Not obviously he's like 50% of the company, but I mean, how instrumental was the two of you guys together? You know, do you think that you would have made it not just from like a practical perspective of like you guys, hopefully you guys have some sort of complementary skills, but more like, how much did you guys support each other? How much were you guys sort of like an emotional support network for each other that yeah, so, sort of pushed each other on? I mean, I'd say it would not have succeeded if we didn't have each other. Um, 
people who start their businesses by themselves, I have just unbelievable respect for. I mean, pe- people who succeed at businesses if they started themselves, uh, I have an unbelievable amount of respect for it because uh, there are just moments when all hope seems lost. And to, to, to not have someone who's in this, I mean, ha- just having someone in the same boat as you is, is really, really important um, because, because there's always someone who can say, you know, like, there's always someone that you can turn to. And so usually like one of us is freaking out and the other person is like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, I used to row in college and it was, it was the same sort of thing where like there's, there's different boat configurations and you can, you can be in an eight, you can be in a quad, you can be in a four, you can be in a double, you can be in a single. And like when I would do practices in this thing, cause I never raced a single, but when I, when you're rowing by yourself in a single and you get tired, you're just kind of like, okay, well, like, I guess I'll just row a little slower, you know, I'll just let this time slip, like, like no big deal. When you are in an eight and you are pulling and everyone around you is pulling, it, it, you're doing it just as much for the other guys, you're doing it for yourself. And, um, and, and you take comfort almost in the fact that everyone around you is hurting just as much as you are. And um, you, you actually notice it because when you think someone isn't pulling, everyone stops pulling because, uh, because everyone has to, if you don't feel like you're in it together, it kind of all falls apart. And I think that's the same with businesses, which is that like when you have like a small crew of a founding team, when everyone's pulling hard, everyone gets a lot of comfort from that. Um, when you're on your own, you don't really have that, that benefit. And so let's, that's awesome. Um, just putting it out there. Um, let's, let's go back to Sunski. So, so we kind of left, left the Sunski story of like scrappy, you know, ceramic, uh, salsa bowls to suddenly you guys go on Kickstarter, you get $150,000 worth of orders and you know, what happens then? And, and can you just walk me through, you know, briefly sort of like from there to sort of the present day where you guys are now, what the state of the business is, talk me through what that journey has been like. Um, it was actually fairly traditional at that point. I mean, because like that had, we had done two years of scraping by, um, trying to, trying to, you know, figure out how to do things. And it was really just taking all the lessons that we'd learned over the past few years and sort of, this was finally the time that we had, you know, we'd already made all the mistakes as possible really. And so this is the time, this is a fresh slate with a bit more cash to do it right. Um, and so it was, it was exactly the same formula, which was which was identifying what makes Sunski's unique, which is you know it's the the authenticity, it's the price point, it's the it's the storytelling, it's the demographic base, it's the timing. Continuing to do a really good job at that, while also always trying to seek out help for what to do next, and always always having some lead time in terms of who do we talk to, who's going to tell us what the next steps are. How do we incorporate that? And, and your planning goes from like, what are we doing tomorrow to what are we doing to next week to what are we doing to next month? And now it's like, what are we doing next quarter, the quarter after that, and the year after that? Um, your time frame grows as your company gets bigger. But but at the end of the day, you're just doing the same thing that you do, did when you started out, which is which is making sure that you stay very focused on exactly what your competitive advantage is and making sure to only emphasize that in terms of, of how you build your business. And then always making sure to keep building your relationship network so that you have resources that you can draw upon, you know, now or anticipated in the future. Like, like I see the business going this way. I should figure out who I'm going to be able to talk to at that point in time now. So that when I hit that point, I've already, you know, I've already established this relationship. 
And um, I mean, the story gets, actually gets quite boring after Kickstarter to now. I mean, it's, there's obviously ups and downs and twists and turns, but but um, it becomes very uh, bit more bit more routine, um, which in a business is actually really nice. <laughs> I bet, especially after living with your parents and yeah. being broke. Living with Tom's parents, living with my parents, living in an office, living under an office, living in a, you know, we're going to have a living room. And so what's the state of the business now? Like, I mean, I'm pure, I've heard millions in revenue. Like what, what's you, you know, you guys had $150,000 pre-orders. Like what scale are you guys operating at and how big is the team? We are four now with a couple, we have a, we have a couple freelancers. We have some remote, remote people who help out. And then we have like a freelance product designer and a, and a brand manager that's remote. Um, so I guess we're really like five to five and a half. Um, we have a warehouse in San Jose uh, that handles all of our orders. Um, you know, we have a we have a PR firm that's really awesome that we work with. We have uh, some sales rep groups, and um, we're we're essentially. I mean, it's it's a pretty big operation from my perspective. Pretty tiny by most people's perspectives. Um, and we we do a lot of. I mean, we do a couple million dollars in sales every year. Um, and we are growing our product line. We have our product line ready for next year now. Um, so we're, we're, we're staying ahead of all of our, all of our, uh, we're now getting ahead of the deadlines. Um, and, and that's really like where the state of the business is, which is that, that we've now kind of hit our stride and we're trying to just grow between 50, you know, 50% a year or so, um, as long as we can keep that up and always anticipating the problems and, um, making sure that we have the, the staff that we need to, keep doing the workflow because Tom and I maxed out the amount of work we could accomplish like a year ago. And yeah, this is a new phase of the business. And how, and what do you guys, so first, how many products do you guys have just right now? And, and what do you guys, where do you see this business going in three, five, 10 years? Um, we have, we have, uh, we only make sunglasses. It took us a while to figure out that sunglasses was where you should be. That's why I'm saying like focus on your competitive advantage. Um, we have like, maybe 20 SKUs right now, 20, 20 different combinations of silhouette and colorway. You know, we're going to have 30 by the winter. We're going to have 42 by next January. And then hopefully we can figure out a way to phase out older styles so we don't keep increasing our catalog exponentially. Um, and then several years from now, I mean, what we really see is I think uh, more retail presence. Um, we have like our own retail location. Uh, there's some brands that we really like that we'd like to emulate like um, uh, Deus Ex Machina is a, is a motorcycle and surfboard company that just has just has awesome locations around the world and like Bali where they just build these awesome installations and they do art and music and food and they have some offices there and they the guys just travel around to these remote offices and hang out and and um, I think I think what we like to do is we just want to incorporate because we've been working hard and and the goal for the next three years is to figure out a way that Sunski can incorporate into our life and our life can incorporate into Sunski in a much more organic and, and, uh, fun way. Um, you know, how do we align exactly what we love to do with Sunski? You know, how do we, how do we take business trips out to meet our Japanese distributors and also make week long ski trips out of it? You know, we're trying to move our office out to the sunset so that if the surf is good on a Tuesday at, at one you can just jump out, into your wetsuit from the office, run down with your board and go surfing and then come back and work. I mean, the idea is not to not work. Like working is really fun. It, it gives 
I feel like gives most people purpose in life. The idea is to only work on fun things. And so that I think is the goal for Sunski going forward is, is how do we, how do we continue to grow while also just having fun? Because, you know, some businesses want to just have some major exit after a grueling period. I think that, you know, everybody kind of has to figure out what they want to do. And, you know, it took Tom and I some soul searching to figure out what we wanted to do. But our particular goal is to love what we do. And that's really just, there's a period after that. That's awesome. Um, so, I, you know, and I want to wrap this up. This is kind of going on for a little bit. Um, but I have one more question. And that is, you guys have this have had this amazing journey. You know, it's several years in, and one of the things I, I, I'm I'm really interested in personally, I think a lot of people are really interested in is what's the future of the of the, of the labor market. You know, there's all this talk about oh, where are where are the jobs? Where are the jobs? You know, um, and I think there's it's pretty clear if if you want to get a job as a software engineer. There's a lot of those jobs. In the future, will more and more people have stories like yours? Will is you know is this something that you think is going to become increasingly sort of an, an increasingly prominent life story or a a path a career path that? not just a few more people, but it is going to become more and more dominant in society. How do you guys think of that for people who are, who are trying to think about what the future holds for, you know, for, for the youth, you know, for, 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 for jobs and, and for careers, where, where is that going as, as you see it based on your experience today? I, I don't particularly foresee more people doing what, what we're doing. I mean, I, I haven't done the road. I, I understand how hard it is. And I, I understand that there's always an attrition rate and, you know, you kind of hit some equilibrium. I think though, what we do see is not necessarily starting your own business, but I'm, I don't know what the term I'd use to call it, but it's like the, uh, everybody's a sole proprietor of, of their name, you know, LLP. Um, what you're finding is that people, you know, and I think that this will continue as as the labor market is more flexible, as we see, um, you know, people are switching jobs more reliably. Uh, your experience is more important than your education. Um, people are asking, what can you do, not what have you done? And you see people, you know, everyone's got their own website now with their resume on it. Um, and and when they're working for businesses, they're they're almost like a like a permanent subcontractor, and everyone's trying to get out of the business as much as the business is trying to get out of them because they all have these ideas for, you know, how am I going to grow my career? Where is it going? And everybody, I, the way I see the labor market going is it is it successful people are thinking about themselves as, as a business, you know, as, as, you know, if you were like an independent contractor or a consultant. And so when you're working for a company, you are simply consulting for them for the period that you're working for them. And then you're moving on. Um, people are not really, you know, you don't see people getting the era of like working for a company your whole life and then expecting them to take care of you in your retirement is, is done. So, um, is that a good I, thing? I don't know. I, I, I cannot answer that definitively. I, I kind of like the ability to be flexible, but I'm sure other people like security. So it's just a, a trade off of, of preferences. Um, 
but but what I mean, I just I just think what you see is that is that everybody kind of treats themselves like their own business, and you have your own little business plans, which are you know your own internal goals and careers and drives, and you know how am I going to make a rent because your overhead is your your food and your you know your your sales are your income from your business, and how do we you know how do we grow our business? How do I get more money? How do I get a raise? How do I how do I contribute more to this company to make myself seem more invaluable? So when I go have that performance review, you know, I set myself up in the best way possible. Um, so I think I think I think we're all half right. I think that um, I think that we are going to see more entrepreneurship, but not in the traditional starting a company sense, but more just the way that people treat themselves in their own careers. Sounds like more more of a free agent economy. Yeah, and I I, I truly think that that's the future. Um, we, I, I, I'm going to start running into some other obligations. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Michael, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, this is this is the first episode of Columbia Alumni Radio. Uh, if you want to pimp it out to your friends, um, it's we're available. You can subscribe on ColumbiaRadio.org. And, um, and and wrapping this up, uh, I'm Matt Morales, the the host of Columbia Alumni Radio, and I, I've I've been here talking today with Michael Charlie of Sunsky Sunglasses. And he's told us this awesome story of, of how they built this amazing business and amazing, amazing lifestyle. Michael, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been, been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Absolutely, Matt. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.